My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Today I'm linked up with Mike Dennehy at Kinsale in Ireland. The first time we met was on a plane from Heathrow to Namibia to fish the Skeleton Coast beaches for big sharks. Talking to Dave Lewis after the event, who was also there with us, it's thought that our haul was probably the biggest beach fishing catch in angling history. I can remember headlines back in the 1970s when wrecking boats would bring in a thousand pounds of fish between ten anglers, and that, back then, was big news. Yet there we were with 11 anglers fishing in the surf over six days for a total in excess of £15,000, with all of us taking at least one day out to try for other fish. And I also remember yourself and Dave Devine going head-to-head one day to try to catch 10 sharks in the same session, which incredibly both of you did. At an average weight of between 150 and 160 pounds apiece, that's pushing up £1,600 for a single day, which when everybody else's weights were added into the equation, came out to around £7,000. Absolutely incredible fishing. Looking back upon it, it certainly was a, a magical trip. So much so, I actually returned the following year with three or four of my friends, and we, we ventured further up the coast. We went up as far as the Skeleton Coast National Park. Um... We had some terrific sport. We camped out under the, the stars every night. We had barbecues, or as the, the South Africans call it, we had a bray every night. It was stunning. The fishing was spectacular. Um, we weren't targeting sharks as such on that particular trip, but we got other species like cob, or cobble as they call them, and various types of gully shark and guitar fish, and a myriad of species. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful trip. Have a fancy going back and giving it another crack at the sharks? Actually, I'd, I'd enjoy to go back there again if I had the opportunity to be truthful. It's a really, really lovely venue. I hear on the grapevine that it's not fishing to the same standard that we had. But mind you, where is these days? Indeed, indeed. Of course, that was a long time ago. That must have been back, gee, I guess, was it around the late 90s, maybe? 97, 98, something like that? Close. 1999. Was it 99? Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. So what motivated you, and I suppose Dave as well, to put your body through so much pain? Gee, I, you know, Phil, I was young, younger. I won't say young, I was younger. If it was 99, I was 29 at the time. So I was probably a lot fitter than what I am today, and a lot uh, testosterone, we'll say. And... Um, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I must admit I was quite sore that night. My biceps were in pieces and my back was in pieces. And so look, it's a good memory to have. And I don't think I'll do it again. <laughs> and now you don't do much in the way of shore fishing at all. So what's happened there? I suppose I just fell in love with the, the whole boating and the the whole experience of being at sea and seeing mammals and... Obviously, whales, you know, we, we see, for example, porpoises, seals, dolphins, bottlenose, and common dolphins. So, like, there's an awful lot more to it than simply the angling side of it. I just fell in love with the sea completely, being on the sea. For example, we even see turtles there at times when we're in the Gulf Stream. Plus, you've access to more variety of species when you're offshore. You know, you're kind of restricted to your normal 
I suppose seven or eight dependable species off the shore but like so you can add another 10 species onto that again when you're offshore. But it wasn't just any type of boat fishing. It very quickly evolved into charter boat fishing with you at the wheel. So again, what's the story behind that? Well, Phil, ever before Namibia, I actually had a little an Orkney 19. And I believe yourself, actually, and Dave Devine used to do a, a little editorial there in one of the Angley magazines about skippering your own small boats. And back then, I probably looked at some of the work you were doing and learned from it to, to, to a degree. And I went away and I purchased a, an Orkney 19, was my first little boat. And then I had um, a Warrior 195. I suppose I kept her for four years, three or four years. And then I bought an Osprey 26. And with the Osprey... We fished well offshore. We were often 50 and 60 miles offshore because of its speed. And then due to some of the... I don't know if you're familiar with stern drives, but they can be a little bit a little bit problematic. So I had a client. I sold the boat and a Rodman 1250, a twin-engine Rodman 1250 with almost a 1,000 horsepower became available. And myself and a good friend of mine, James Walsh, we, we bought her as a business venture. So... We run charters and it's there for our own hardcore fishing when we choose to, if you know what I mean. So the boat we have, she has, um, she, obviously she needs to be, how will I put it, um, she needs to be accredited and to be tested by the Irish Department of the Marines. So she's got a, she's licensed for 30 miles from Safe Haven in day and night. So we run charters out of Kinsale. We see all sorts. We have hardcore fishermen that come to us. We do stag parties, whale watching. We do the whole myriad, really, you know. So what is that personal aspect of the fishing? Because it's that that feeds back into the exciting stuff which I know you're now offering to your anglers. My own personal fishing as well, yeah. So sometimes it can be your own personal private fishing suffers, especially in the busier months. But um, we'll say early summer were quieter and the autumn, which coincides with the big game fishery, were normally quieter with casual groups at that time of year. So we get to do our own bit of fishing. Because we're depending on weather. Like, very often we'd, we'd, we could have a, bo- a weekend booking, but the weather could be really good on the Tuesday or Wednesday. So we'll take leave from our other employments or whatever, and we'll, we'll go offshore on those days, you know. One facilitates the other, if you know what I mean, because obviously a big, a 43-foot, twin engine motorboat is there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of upkeep and a lot of expense involved I try and pick and choose what species I pursue species like haddock uh, we get some fine haddock they would probably be my favourite inshore I use the term inshore loosely no, but my favourite species would probably be the haddock so I do a lot of haddock fishing but other than that we get you know we get hoss and we get cod obviously on the wrecks as well as pollock coalfish but the wreck fishing isn't quite what it once was. Years ago, there was a time and we could be guaranteed 40 or 50 cod, just like you guys did in the UK years ago. Catch and release some of it, or you know, you, you keep it for, for a feed or whatever. But um, nowadays, the, the numbers aren't on those wrecks anymore, you know. Some of those fish were really special, you know. We've had them up to... 37 pounds or 37 and a half pounds we've had caught the 37 and a half we still get very large ling 
Um, we get Lingen maybe forty pounds plus. Congers to similar weight, and there's also pub eagle sharks on, on those offshore wrecks. With the jewel in the crown being the quality of the tuna fishing just at the moment, which is 2017. Indeed, the, the tuna fishery really has exploded in the last five to six years. I suppose we first came upon those bluefins while targeting albacore. We, we do a lot of albacore fishing as well in the autumn, typically in July, kind of from the third week in July onwards. And I suppose back in 2013, we were probably 60 miles from land and in with the albacore, there was a large quantity of raised bream and they were kind of, how I describe it? It was like some of these skimming stones on the water. That's the analogy I would use. You just see this like a silver splash and in among the silver splash, all of a sudden, you see this big explosion of a 400 pound plus bluefin coming out. I'm guessing that they were feeding on whatever the raised bream were feeding on or else they were targeting the raised bream. That was the first real encounter we had with them. And then subsequent years, when we were on big quantities of albacore, we'd see the telltale signs on the echo sounder. Like you'll see wicked tuna style, you'll see the mark coming out of the abyss and it just streaks up and the closer it gets to the echo sounder, or sorry, to the transducer, the mark becomes heavier and deeper on the echo sounder and it's maybe, it's visible up through 600 feet of water or, or even more. And then it all kind of culminated in 2015 when I think that was probably the first fish that we actually hooked and landed. I think we had a fish maybe, I don't know, 200 kilos, 440 pounds on very light tackle on a plug. And it took us five and a half hours to get him to the boat. It was quite quite an ordeal, to be truthful. And I'm not sure I'd want to do it again. Um, we quickly learned, like, if you're targeting bluefin, you have to have sufficiently heavy gear. You won't last the jewel and neither will the fish. The fish will, the fish will expire because of the, the battle, you know. Looking back to when Adrian Malloy and the lads over on the other side first started getting bluefin tuna around the late 1990s, these fish were tracking up along the west coast right to the very top possibly even into Scottish waters and maybe beyond into the North Sea like they used to in the 1950s when Scarborough was the big tuna mecca. Then suddenly it all went quiet to the point that the boats had to revert back to the fishing they'd done previously. But now it seems it's back again. But not just back how it was, albeit with possibly a smaller stamp of fish up to say £400, but also fish moving up into the Celtic Sea within range of some of the southeast ports like Kinsale, which I know that you've been getting your share of there too. I think, Phil, from the limited knowledge that any sport fisherman can have, I think what's happening is that the European Union, primarily the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Greeks, they're... Um, it, the fishery has been managed better by these people and a lot of the the mortalities with these young fish were taken for the um, the fattening farms in the med so I think the EU now have um, have they've upped, their, upped the ante and they've improved what they should be doing they're minding the fishery better and I think the ICAT the Tuna Commission you know they, they went and they um had all but a moratorium on these on these giant bluefins for a season or two seasons. Now they're slowly giving the quota back out now again, and I think this coming year, it's going to have the biggest quota to date. But I think the years of moratorium and the very strict quotas certainly improved the fishery, and 
I suppose getting back to the, the you, you mentioned the Celtic Sea. I, I think the fish were potentially always here, but maybe we we weren't clued in. Maybe we we weren't looking for them actively, and we didn't know what to be looking for. Because to the untrained eye, you look at bluefin activity and you'll say, "Oh, that's a dolphin." But when you know, when you truly know what you're looking for, yes, it looks like a dolphin in the water, but the way that it displaces the water to the trained eye straight away immediately it's a telltale it's a giveaway so i think it's yes they were in decline for a long time but maybe they had a presence there that we weren't completely aware of because i know that one of the fish that adrian malloy tagged in and around 2004 it ran the one of the fish ran across the atlantic back towards the mid-atlantic ridge and another fish ran down the west coast of ireland stayed around the Cork Kinsale area, went into the Celtic Sea before it eventually went back down into the Med and into spawn or to to breed or to, or whatever the case may be in order to fatten up further. So I think that we, we could potentially have had these fish off the south and southeast coasts for a long, long time. So are you finding that since around 2005 or whenever it was, now that the fish are back, the answer's because the last batch when Adrian Malloy just missed out on the grander. This wave seems to be maxing out at three to four hundred pounds. Is that indicative of the current state, or will these fish get bigger given more time and no overexploitation? Um, I would have maybe two years ago. I would probably have agreed with you that they're they are a smaller class of fish. However. This year we kind of read a very, we, we met a really rich vein of sport offshore this year, and we were hand feeding vast schools of giants every day that we went out there, and some of these fish were seeing was believing they, they truly were, they were behemoths, they were just enormous enormous animals, and the largest one that we successfully took both sides measured and released safely was approximately 100 inches. So a 100 fish, or sorry, a 100 inch uh, North Atlantic bluefin by anyone's standards is getting on for 600 plus. So like three years ago, the first of the fish we had were probably in the 80 to 85 inch bracket, which would put them maybe around four to approximately 400 pounds, the dimensions you're talking about. But definitely this year in the late autumn, they were absolute monsters, and I mean monsters of fish. Some of the fish we hooked, we just with eighty white Shimano Tiagras, forty pounds or forty five pounds of drag at strike. We just couldn't deal with these fish. You'd end up starting, or uh, sorry, that's not not so much starting the engine, but gunning the engines hard and chasing these fish down to try and stay with them to prevent getting spooled. They truly were runaway trains. Hard to, it's hard to be sure exactly how large they were, but. I previously heretofore hadn't met anything like them anyway. Now, some of the the whale watch boats that I kind of liaise with, because where you find bluefins, you also find humpbacks and fin whales. Some of the whale watch boats are experiencing smaller fish, fish in the 100 to maybe 150 pound class. So we seem to have an influx of small fish, as well as the... the the cows or, or, or the giants or whatever you want to call them. Which I think has to be... A, I was just going to say that, that that must bode well for the future of the fishery if you've 
small to medium fish and a few giants all together. You mentioned they're hand feeding the giant bluefins down the side of the boat. Does this mean that like way back in the North Sea days that live baits are a good approach or do you prefer the more searching approach offered by a spread of lures? Well what we do typically is when we're prospecting we'll put out a spread we'll have outriggers we'll have uh, two spreaders sorry I'm using the term spreader bars I'm not sure if you're familiar with the terminology it's a squid bar I'm sure you've probably seen it on the telly or whatever so we fish a squid bar off the port and starboard rigger and we fish two off the flatlings off the stern as well just purely while we're while we're prospecting we'd normally reduce it to two rods when we're truly on the fish but once I find a decent accumulation of fish what I'll do is I'll start chumming or I'll start throwing in whole herrings. So if I, let's say I'm marking tuna at 100 feet down. And if I get if we get a take on the on the bluefin bar, I'll go back up to where we met the fish and I'll start throwing in herrings. It might take 10 minutes. It might take an hour. But eventually you'll just see this big, huge boil, not unlike a, a big dolphin or a whale. And before you know it, you can almost put the herrings into their mouths. It's quite a sight. It's actually, it's amazing. And they've become more and more brave. Initially, they're a little bit timid. But after feeding them for an hour or an hour and a half, we could have 40 kilos or maybe 80 kilos of herring with us. Once you've 40 kilos of herring gone into the water, the fish become extremely bold. And they'll feed right at the side of the boat. They have no fear. If anything, I think the boat, the noise of the engines, the boat drumming away, you know, obviously the noise travels for miles at sea. Fish are quite happy. They'll come right up to the boat. You mentioned earlier that you first found the bluefins while he was out there fishing for the albacore. That's correct. Talk us then through that aspect of the fishing for another member of the tuna family. And these days, one caught far less widely than the bigger cousins, despite the fact that it's quite a well-established practice in that corner of Ireland. First started, I believe, by Derek Noble and Nick Dent. To begin with, you mentioned Derek Noble and Nick Dent. Um, you're forgetting probably the, the guy who developed the whole thing and that's a guy called Alan Glanville Alan was um, an ex-commercial fisherman that fished for albacore in the Mediterranean and down other places like Vigo on the northwest coast of Spain Alan is actually the guy who caught the first of the albacore he had the original Irish record as he did the first rod and line caught bluefin as well in the state I think Nick probably wouldn't have um how will I put it? I suppose Nick Dent certainly did one or two trips at these fish, as did um, Derek Noble. Yeah, Derek was probably more of an aficionado than, than anybody else. But um, in recent years, I suppose we're chasing these fish since about um, 2008, 2009 maybe. I actually, believe it or not, went initially got the first of the albacore in my Osprey 26. Looking back on it, I was probably a little bit foolhardy. We ended up fishing maybe 70 miles west of um, Port McGee in a 26-foot boat out in the Atlantic. Looking back on it, I was probably quite uh, over the top, we'll say. Quite foolish, but uh, look, it paid off. That first initial trip, we got I think we only got three fish. Um, I suppose an average weight is 10 kilos, 12 kilos. But what I'm doing is year on year, every time you go out, I put a little waypoint on the plotter and what I'm discovering is that obviously there's little, even though we're out in the blue ocean, 
it appears that it's just a desert that there's no life anywhere you know there's no features is what i should say there's obviously clearly upwellings there's currents there's eddies because we're consistently catching these tuna within a few meters of where they were the year before you could be trolling for an hour and it'll be quiet and i'll say look come on guys pull in the lines and i'll steam to maybe 15 miles to the northeast or whatever where we previously had fish the year before put the lines in the water and i'll come within 100 meters of that black long wham one rod goes two rods go before we know it, we've got a, a multiple hookup and that's that repeats itself year on year so we're talking very much smaller fish here very different fish too, both physically and in terms of the requirements for deep water. Um, to answer your question about dimensions, I think the current Irish record is 66.5 pounds. What is it, 32 or 33 kilos? I suppose an average fish is 12 or 14 kilos. I would consider a decent fish 15 to 22 kilos, and anything above that then truly is a, a fish of a lifetime. We fish for them with lighter tackle, kind of 20 pound class tackle is probably sufficient. But you do need a fairly stout leader because if you have a multiple hookup, if the lines cross, one fish will burn through the other, the other fish's um, leader and one or both the fish will escape. But you're completely right, it's very much um, an offshore fishery. You'll hear people saying that years ago during the BIM trials, that's the Irish um, fishery promotion unit years ago they went away and they, and they paid fishermen to go lining for these fish and there was actually a, a boat from Dunmore East or Kilmore Key gave a full season commercially fishing with the Spanish line fishermen so these are guys that actually go out and they troll and I believe in those early years they did catch fish as close as 30 miles and I think Nick Dent may have had fish 30 to 40 miles from the mizzen head Dependably, you need to be 60 miles plus. You need to be over or just at the edge of the continental shelf where it goes from 600 meters into the abyss. But it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, even to be out there, it's a special experience, really. Like you're there and you're catching tuna, and there's fin whales either side of you feeding on the same feed as what the tunas are feeding on. Um, Yes, but to be truthful, I'm not so sure I want to catch a bluefin at that depth because where, where we catch them off the Cork coast in the autumn, we're probably in 400 feet of water, was out there. We could be in more than 2,000 feet of water. So my fear is, will the fish get his head down and will he, you know, will I be able to, to stop him, if you know what I mean? Um, but we, we, we fish for the, for the albacore in a similar fashion but we'd fish a lot more rods for the albacore. We could have eight rods in the spread. We could have two rods on each rigger and maybe three flat lines and we'd have one or two up off the flybridge as well. Um, we catch them on plugs, we catch them on tuna feathers. We've even caught them on jigs, which is great fun really. So what you do is you, you catch one on, on the troll and you end up casting a jig or casting something like a savage gear sandal towards the hooked fish. You let it sink for 20 seconds and then you retrieve your jig or you work your jig back to the boat and invariably you catch other fish that are swimming with the hooked fish if you if you if you understand me okay so let's now start talking sharks 
Let me start with the blue sharks, which are always pretty numerous around that neck of the woods. Okay, it's a simple enough formula. Lots of mackerel, a good dose of bran and cod liver oil or some type of fish oil mixed in an onion bag over the side. It's quite simple. Because of my tuna fishing exploits, I've got a, a temperature probe. So I try and stay out of the chillier waters. Uh, they say that that blue sharks seem to like maybe 14 degrees Celsius water temperatures. So I try and stay out of water that's any cooler than that. It's a very varied kind of a fishery. Sometimes you get fish and they're not much larger than, than dogfish. And then you could quite easily get a fish well over 100 pounds. I suppose an average day is 12 to maybe 15 or 16 blue sharks. Having said it, then you could easily go out there and, and catch two fish. Or you could go out there and catch 22 fish. I think the most we've ever had was probably, oh dear, I suppose maybe 40 blue sharks in maybe a seven hour session. Um, we ran out of shark traces and we ran out of everything. I'd say there was hundreds of fish under the boat. It was only a matter of get your bait in the water and... And off you went, you know. Now what we're catching there with recent years as well are poor beagles. They seem to be absent for a couple of years off the south coast, but they seem to be making a, a bit of a return. Nothing huge as of yet. Maybe 80 pounds is the largest we've met. We have seen larger ones already on wrecks, but I'm, I'm referring to coastal fishing maybe 10 or 15 miles off the land. And... Usually when we get poor beagles is when we're catching bottom fish, like the likes of whiting and cod, and they'll come up and they'll they'll strip your gear and they'll run off at your fish. So is there nothing you can do to specifically target more poor beagles? Well, what I've taken to doing is these little areas of ground that I know hold large quantities of whiting and a bit of haddock and a bit of cod. I'll drift that area with a chum bag and I'll set a deeper bait maybe down 100 feet or more. And that often pays dividends, or else what will happen is one of the guys will bring up a whiting. Probably will come up and take the whiting and then stay around the boat. And I'll then drop a bait down to the poor beagle and try and catch him that way. But they can still be quite difficult in my experience to catch because they, um, they very often eat the tail off the bait. You really need to get the hook closer to the vent or back towards the tail or otherwise you bring back a head and your um, your live bait or your, the rest of your bait will be gone. They're quite clever at uh, avoiding hooks. When I talked to Andrew Alsop and Andy Griffith on the Welsh side but still fishing the same inlet into the Irish Sea they get huge numbers of blue sharks and a lot more predictability both in terms of size and numbers with the poor beagles. Why then do you think that is? To be truthful they're probably fishing a little bit earlier in the year than what we've been trying. I think if you look at Andrew's results, I think a lot of his parbigals are coming in April and May. And I, to be truthful, it's probably, I suppose, our average, uh, on average, it's probably mid to late June up until the third week in July, or when our main run of blue sharks are and into August, look. And I think by the time the numbers of blue sharks then come on the scene, it's very difficult to catch anything else. Plus, I think where Andrew is fishing is he's fishing along the edges of um, of a deep area where you've got, I won't use the term banks, but there's a drop-off, we'll say. 
Speaking of old shopping Griffiths, let's also not forget that Mako shark. Yeah, it was incredible, yeah. So what puzzles me with Mako sharks is that between the early 1950s and the mid-70s, a total of 45 Makos were caught, yet in the 40-odd years since, despite rising sea temperatures, only a single Makos turned up. So why do you think it is that we're not seeing any more? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure to be truthful. Um, I know that some of the commercial fishermen here, when they're targeting the albacore, they have occasionally got absolutely enormous Makos, but they are fishing very much. They're fishing well offshore. These guys, in the early part of the autumn, they could be fishing 500 miles offshore. But yeah, they are seeing some enormous um, Makos. I'm not sure how common or how prevalent they are, to be honest. I, I've never um, witnessed one, but I know there was one taken commercially as well out of um, Crosshaven, which is on, on the south coast, about 10 years ago. So I suppose time will tell. Could it not be, certainly over on the English side, that years ago when sharking was more popular and therefore there was more chum going in along with the baits, more of the rarer sharks such as the mako were inevitable, which is certainly not the case these days. Yeah, I suppose there's a good theory. I guess maybe if you had, maybe in the heydays of Kinsale, 40 years ago you had half a dozen full-time boats. I mean, there's only two or three boats at the very most. Now, nobody's working out of Kinsale, so... Maybe there is uh, an element of truth in what you're saying, that the more chum you have in the water, the better chances you have. Changing tack slightly now, have you ever heard or come across anyone with any first-hand knowledge of six-gill sharks? Because you certainly have the right sort of water depth within striking range. Six-gill is a bit of a, a, bit of a peculiar one. Um, I would be friendly enough with some of the commercial fishermen and... The only commercial or ex-commercial fisherman that I'm aware of that has had experience and had interactions with six skills was a guy called Colin Barnes who works out of um, Union Hall. Colin has had fish, big fish now like ling and congress and stuff, bitten in half while gill netting in along the shoreline, in, especially in the in the autumn. And the area where he would have been fishing would have been would have been an area with very large pinnacles of rock. But he's the only guy that I've ever heard reporting any interactions with them. I know that they get them off the coast of Clare and they get them off the west coast, but I've never heard of anything off the south coast. My experience of fishing the six gills is in 400 metres of water in the daytime and at least 100 metres fishing after dark and always with the baits on the bottom. So fish bitten in half in shore may well turn out to be something else. Unless you deliberately try for these things, chances are you would never even know they were there. You probably won't ever see them, yeah. Um, I suppose maybe off the west coast there, like off the southwest coast, there's a few areas out there now that I know that the, um, the fishermen do fairly frequently catch swordfish. So maybe those fish are working the same area that the swordfish are working with. Funny you should mention swordfish, because not only do I have it here on my questions list, but we also encounter what can only have been a swordfish on a six-gill trip, fishing with live squid 10 metres down over 2,000 metres of water after dark. And contrary to what a lot of people think, they're not confined to the warmer south. Anywhere around Britain and Ireland where the water is deep enough, fishing baits put out at night could be in with a shot. 
but once again, it would need to be a deliberate attempt. I have seen one, I believe I have seen one, on the surface, on a sunny day, out on the shelf, maybe 70 miles from land, sunning himself. We approached him, because I thought it was a piece of timber, and where you get flotsam and jetsam, you will catch stone bass underneath them. So I approached what I believed to have been a piece of timber, and as I approached, the piece of timber raised slightly into the air, and next thing the, we saw a big explosion as it shot down. So I'm thinking we were looking at the build of a sword. Now, the commercial fishermen, both the Spanishmen, the French and the Irish that are pursuing the albacore, off the coast in the months of August, September, October, they have they get quite a healthy amount of swords in with the albacore. Now, they don't like catching them because they ruin the trawls. The sword will go in and start flailing around with this weapon and he rips out the side of the trawl and a big bag of tuna could potentially swim off. But um, yes, the, the swordfish are quite common. And you'll hear anecdotal evidence of a fisherman saying that, yes, yeah, such and such a port had 12 on his last trip. So they're not unusual and they're not, uh, they're not rare. And have you no thoughts of going out and giving it a try? Well, unfortunately, the weather, for example, last year, now there was vast shoals of albacore as close as 50 miles but the weather was so angry, even though we're in a big, safe boat, the weather just simply wasn't there. But yes, if we do get the weather, I plan to uh, give them a try. Now, there is one other big fish I'd like to touch on, which I know they catch quite a few of next door to you over in Cork Sherry. I was going to say common skate, but that species doesn't exist anymore, having been split into two new species, the flapper skate and the blue skate. Those down your end of the country are thought to be blue scared. Just exactly what will happen to the records is anybody's guess, but that's a problem for others to sort out. So is this a fish that either you or your customers are interested in? To answer your initial question, I suppose I do have customers occasionally that will request that we'll do a bit of skate fishing. We have had some skate, but I certainly wouldn't be a specialist at it. And if, to be truthful, even for you to tell me that there was two different species, I'd heard of um, white skate off the west coast and in places like Brandon and Trilly Bays. I'd never heard of flapper skate. This, I believe, has only very recently happened. White skate are another fish altogether, which I've only ever seen over on the west coast, round Phoenix, Dingle and that area. What the Irish Specimen Fish Committee now have taken to doing with certain species is they're using uh, DNA sampling. Uh, so maybe that's what will be required for the future. You mentioned previously aggregation to storm bass under floating objects well offshore. Plus, even further back in the discussion, raised bream also coming up to the top. So to what extent do you stumble across rare or unusual open oceanic species out there on your travels? Yes, there are other species out there, certainly. The likes of storm bass are actually quite common. Um, if you find something like a fish box or even a, a big, like a, a potting float. If you find something like that out at the shelf, you're guaranteed that there will be numerous stone bass underneath it. You'll also likely find um, a big accumulation of triggerfish. Some of the commercial fishermen that fish out there, out that way, they catch really unusual stuff. Um, I suppose the most strange thing I've seen is something called um, an oarfish, 
I don't know if you've ever seen one or not. It's like um, it's a big soft. It's like a giant for all the world, like a sole. Um, that kind of a shape, a kind of a, an ovoid, long shape, but like it could be four feet long as opposed to being, you know, 16 inches long. They're quite common. They get a lot of those. And then they get stuff like um, pomfret and um, grenadiers and all these weird hatchet fish and everything come up off the bottom as the darkness falls. I'd like to tell you that we've caught lots and lots of this odd stuff, but the truth of it is, Normally we go out there, like we leave the land, we'll say at midnight, we'll steam through the night and we'll get out to the, the shelf for daybreak. We'll fish until 4 or 5 p.m. And come 5 p.m. everybody is just wrecked. So we, we invariably set the autopilot for home and someone takes watch and everyone else has a sleep and we kind of rotate it that way. But for example, in 2013, we had a stunning flat cam summer. If that happens this year, watch the space, hopefully. <laughs> we'll certainly try and give it an overnighter anyway. Um, we have a swordfish light. And we also have... Um, we'd have gear that we could potentially try deep dropping as well during the day, just to see if we could come up with anything unusual, you know. And if you don't get a good summer, or for that matter, winter, it's business as usual in shore, I take it. Which is what? I suppose the mainstay of the inshore stuff is, like most um, Irish ports, is your pollock, ling, coalfish, cod, haddock, garnards. They'd be, your, I suppose, the mainstay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we used to have incredible wreck fishing where we could have... Oh, I often had 20 or 30 specimen fish on a wreck in a day. Like coalfish up to 31 pounds cod to 37 and a half pounds but I think they're bygone days to be truthful I don't know will we ever see fish of that calibre again um, but, but we've decent inshore fishing you know there's double figure cod double figure pollock a mile from the land it's good fun on spinning gear like. and the future for the fishing around Kinsale is it bright? Um, even though some species are in decline the likes of the, the tuna it's just exploding. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. Um, so yes, I, I'm very optimistic about the whole thing. And blue sharks, you know, they wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. But the blue sharks seem to be very healthy as well, despite the amount of long that goes on for them. Um, I suppose you could almost say you're guaranteed blue sharks. So a lot of people get a good buzz out of that fishery, you know. So yeah, it's there's still an awful lot of positivity to be had. What about visitor numbers, particularly from the UK, in light of what's now happening with us exiting the EU? Yeah, I think watch the space. Who knows how it'll all end? We, we do see a lot of um, English anglers and English, you know, holiday makers that do a bit of fishing as opposed to hardcore fishermen. But um, I suppose you would be hopeful that in the future that Britain and Ireland are obviously close neighbours, so... Hopefully the um, the relationship can, can continue despite whatever happens with the EU, you know. Admittedly, I'm a Brexiteer, but the last thing we need is silliness regarding the border. So let's keep it business as usual. But unfortunately, that's not up to you and me. Yeah, I would certainly hope that way, yeah. So fingers crossed, and let's hope that the new political map brings better fishery prospects for the UK, 
without piling additional pressure on Irish waters where I've enjoyed some wonderful fishing over the years. Many thanks then to Mike Dennehy for sharing his experiences with us here.